I'm going to DM her the first tweet, and we're going to get into it. Here's Merve Emre. So the first one you've sent me says, I, it, it offers us a kind of character, four-year-old, and then what appear to be stage directions, four-year-old, very patiently to woman trying to push past him on the street, colon, I'm not a pigeon or a seagull. I'm a little boy with small legs, and I'm walking as fast as I can. <laughs> and this has uh, 18 replies and 291 retweets and 4,188 likes. Is that your four-year-old, or was that a four-year-old? <laughs> no, that was my four-year-old. So one thing that I am amazed by every time I go out in the street is the in consideration, let us say, that many adults show not just toward one another, but often toward smaller creatures, whether those are little boys or pigeons. And I think that in general, children are more sensitive than we probably give them credit for. So this was my four-year-old who had probably seen someone chasing or shooing pigeons out of the way and felt similarly shooed out of the way by a woman who was trying to push past him on the street. So, yeah. So he was like speaking up not just on behalf of himself, but on the pigeon and seagull community as well. I think <laughs> yeah, that's he, cool. <laughs> yeah, he's like the Lorax who speaks on behalf of the trees, but he's speaking on behalf of the of, of things that shit indiscriminately yeah. on the street. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, I have a very vivid memory of, you know, moving right. to the United States from Turkey with my family. How old were you, may I ask? I was four. And of living in Park Slope. Before Park Slope was what Park Slope was now. So this is the early, early 90s. Uh, and living very close to the to the public library there, the one in Grand Army Plaza, which I used to call Grand Armory Pizza. <laughs> and... And I remember going to that library and trying to take all of the American girl books and all of these roll doll books with me and being devastated to learn that you needed a library card, that you couldn't just walk out and that you had to apply and wait for a library card to come. And this is one of those great moments of childhood disappointment that is forever imprinted wow. on my on my on my brain. I mean, I think that's why Matilda stands out for me because there's no real child at the center of that book. There's right. just the desire and the capacity, the ability to read. What's nuts about uh, Roald Dahl, unfortunately, he was anti-Semitic and it's, yeah. it's ghastly. You know, it's just ghastly. I, yeah. I, it breaks my heart. I can't believe it because in so many other ways, he was like, you know, uh, he always rooted for the children in his books. Like he was aligned with the disempowered. Have you have you ever read the short stories? Yes, they're so good. Yeah. So I was just reading this kind of um bizarre one called you you might remember this one it's called bitch and it was published in playboy in 1974 and it came out sort of in the middle i think of the watergate hearings right it so summer 1974 and the sort of plot of the story is that it's one of those uncle osborne stories do you remember right. that kind of debonair mm -hmm. don juan figure uh uncle osborne that he had so Uncle Osborne has a friend who invents a kind of perfume 
uh, a pheromone so concentrated that any man who smells it immediately rapes the first woman that they could find. Wow, okay. And the plot of this story is that Uncle Osborne will plant it on the woman who is the head of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the DAR, who is meeting with the president on television that night. And he will plant it on her and the pheromone will release and the president will rape her on TV. Oh my God. And he says, they can't help but impeach him after he does that. And of course, this all goes completely awry in various ways. And at the end of it, Uncle Osborne ends up being the one who smells it. And the the short story ends with him just turning into a seven-foot penis. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and you read it. Okay, so I'm getting back to the children's thing. You read it and you think, oh, my God, if I look back then over everything that Dahl has written... Even the children's books are filled with these fantasies of bigness. So even those fantasies of bigness, when he does seem to be kind of rooting for the disempowered, rooting for the weak, rooting for the small, it's hard for that to escape the kind of penumbra of that very kind of masculinist, if only I were big enough, if only I were a seven foot cock. I think that's really true. I mean, I don't think that's true, but I think that that (laughs) energy is in his books for sure. Here's another one for you in your DMs. I think it was a reply to what is the story from your childhood that most emblematizes the kind of person you've grown up to be. And my response to it was when I was five, I broke my arm jumping off a picnic table and didn't tell anyone about it until my dad noticed that my arm was, well, hanging at a strange angle. Oh, wow. <laughs> because okay. we lived in Brooklyn at that yeah. point. And I had this downstairs neighbor, Jonathan. Mm-hmm my first friend, really, that I remember. But we were playing tag with him and his brother. He had an older brother. And I was trying to get him. And I climbed on top of a picnic table and jumped down. And I slammed my arm into the ground. And I broke it. Oh, I'm so sorry. And, oh, that's okay. And I remember as a child, I was always very afraid that I was a burden. I was very afraid of being a burden. I think that, you know, when when my parents moved to the United States from Turkey, they were already fairly established in their professions. When they were in Turkey, they were both physicians. Right. And they had to start their training all over again Yeah, when they came to this country. And right. they had very little money. The first apartment that we lived in was not in Park Slope, though I can't remember which neighborhood it was in now. Right. If you ask my parents at that time, they had so little money that they couldn't pay, you know, whatever, however much the subway yeah. cost, 50 cents or whatever it was to take me to school. So my dad would carry me on his shoulders for like, you know, 30 blocks. Anyway, so I think I was always worried about being a burden because it seemed like my parents had way bigger problems. Right. Um, You know, between moving to a new country, my father didn't speak any English. Yeah. I think my mother used to steal beans from the hospital cafeteria. This is incredible. Did your English outpace theirs? relatively quickly or no I'm it, curious it it did and there's actually I found this copy of Amos and Boris that my first grade teacher had inscribed to me because I guess they'd given it to me as a gift at the end of the year and it said you know it said something like to think that you showed up in this class not speaking a word of English wow. and now you can I think she said now you can read and write like a pro yeah 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 <laughs> I love that God yeah. blessed all those people in our youth like that that would just 
They don't even yeah. know. Maybe they know how much it means. But you, you yeah. even quoting her sentence that many years later, it's like that shows exactly yeah. how much that meant. Yeah, my parents used to, they couldn't afford a babysitter or after school care in any way. So they actually used to leave me with her after school yeah. for her to, and she, I think out of, you know, just kind of the goodness of her heart took took care of me because we had nobody. Right. But um, but my first friend into this, into this scene that I've set for you, my yeah, first yeah, yeah. friend was this boy, Jonathan. I tried to get him. I broke my arm. I felt terrible telling anybody about it. And so I think his mother or babysitter was watching us and we went back to their apartment and, and you I were just trying to be crying. cool yeah. I was trying to be cool but I couldn't stop crying and oh. finally whoever the adult was called my father and he came and realized that it was that it was it was very clearly broken and I remember him putting my arm in a sling yeah. and putting me in a taxi and us taking the taxi to the hospital to have the bone set I, I have and never so- I'm sure I will break a bone later today. I've never broken a bone. I didn't have braces and I never broke a bone. Oh my God, you're so lucky. I had two rounds of braces. And in the first round, I had this terrible thing called a palate expander. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, where they would put it like, and and one of my real like trauma-rama moments from middle school (laughs) was the fact that the dentist put this palate expander in the night before we were supposed to give speeches for student body president but you know the palate expander gave you this terrible kind of lisp and so (laughs) could you sleep that night were you mortified i mean that sounds traumatic let me just add to the trauma rama of all of this which is that that night my mom was like let's go out for japanese food or something and i went out and ordered this tempura and it got got stuck in that expander and I started choking and just as I was choking like the three coolest girls from middle school happened to be eating at that restaurant and they came over to say hi and I was like (gasps) (laughs) 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 just like a cat trying to cough up a hairball or something it was truly and then I had to go give this kind of lispy unintelligible speech about why you should vote for me for recording secretary of did you win it no of course are you insane of course i did (laughs) more twitterverse after the break Welcome back to Twitterverse. I'm about to DM another tweet to literary critic Merve M. Ray. Oh, this is me when I was, I must have been three here. Yeah, this is in Turkey. I used to go stay with my grandparents for three months every summer. And my grandmother actually probably knitted these very, I'm looking at a pair of very bright orange shorts that look like they have blue Mike and Ikes all over them. They're cool though. They're like uh, <laughs> they sort of got like the Jimmy Jams vibe from when I <laughs> we would wear those Bahama long shorts. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I think this was probably a picture that my grandmother took. And I'll leave it to you, Gabe, to tell me whether you can see the person I am now in this picture or not. <laughs> I actually can. I see it in the eyes. 
And yeah. also you just have a kind of light about your countenance, which I think is present Aww. here and then also present currently. And uh, there is... You know you know where it was not present? It was what? not present in that Japanese restaurant when I was choking <laughs> I on my choking on my That tempura. feels like a seminal <laughs> moment from your life. Like, I, I mean, that's got to be way up there as far as like... I feel like, I feel like we're chronicling all my great traumas here. Yeah, we're yeah. chronicling that, you know, my broken arm, not getting my library card, all right. of the... <laughs> We should at some point talk about the one I sent you. Let's do it now. We're going back in the archives because it doesn't technically exist, right? It doesn't technically exist. So I'll read it and then I'll tell you why it doesn't technically exist. Okay. So this is from April 23rd of last year. Woke up, discovered three-year-old had had massive nosebleed, his clothes covered in blood, washed him, walked into the kitchen, found five-year-old stirring his brother's bloody clothes in a pot filled with hot water, I need his blood, he said. I need his blood for my poisons. That's an amazing <laughs> scenario. So I will say first that the very first person to like this uh, is one of my favorite novelists, Helen DeWitt. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I tweeted this, I set it aside. I go back and there are just thousands upon thousands of <laughs> likes, retweets, uh, I think by the time I had deleted it, and I'll tell you in a second why I deleted it, by the time I deleted it, it had somehow ended up on The View. Wow. Uh, oh, my it had, gosh. It had, ended up in, <laughs> it had ended up in, like, the British tabloids as evidence of people turning to sorcery during the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think by the time I deleted it, it had something like 623K yeah. likes or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and... It was an extremely strange experience for me because I think one of the things you realize when something really goes viral in that way is the degree to which you become completely not a human right. to the public sphere, to the Twitter sphere, to the Twitterverse. Yeah. I should drop the I should drop the name of the of the podcast in this, right? <laughs> That's how we do it. You become totally non-human to the Twitterverse. You are no longer a human being who is capable of having feelings that can be hurt. Your children are fair game. Right. Your whole life becomes fair game to completely lunatic people. People writing to me and be like, being like, let me give you a tarot card reading. Your son's nosebleeds might mean that he's going to die very soon. And oh I would gosh. hate for like truly morbid stuff to people being like, how could you not call 911 when your child woke up with it? Like people who just don't know anything about children being like, call an ambulance right, right. To, to people just being like, you lying bitch. Yeah. You, you horrible bitch. Like, why would you? And and I was just completely stunned by this, in part because it just didn't seem that weird to me. My kids do lots of weird steps. But I eventually just deleted it because I realized that a year had passed between when I had tweeted it and in that year, I was still having people commenting on it and still getting, you know, bizarre people writing to me. Super grateful. Good luck with everything, with the peace, with the move. I'll see you on the timeline, okay? Thank you for having me. 